new era in independent art celebration. Indecent exposure. You were convicted of indecent exposure for the third time. That's exactly what it is there, Poindexter. It is four counts of indecent exposure. And this episode may be a little bit of a delayed exposure. But more on that in just a minute. Uh, today is Thursday, September 17th, 2015. I'm your host, Jason Velasquez, And as always, thanks for joining me here on this episode of Indecent Exposure at the Greylock Glass. It's episode 12. Uh, what do we mean by that, delayed exposure? Well, what we mean is that um, during our coverage of the Word by Word Festival recently, I had the distinct privilege and pleasure of speaking with four visiting poets. And I interviewed them and had intended to include that in the coverage of the Word by Word Festival. But as is sometimes the case, uh, life can throw us a curveball, sometimes a sad one. And, and that was the case. So those interviews have been waiting. Um, and in a way... I'm not too, too upset about them because now that I've listened to them over again, I realize that uh, they won't be competing uh, with anything else uh, now that I'm, I'm only doing one topic per show. And, well, you'll see. We, we talk about everything. We, life, the universe, everything, Futurama, you name it. Between these four poets, uh, we leave no stone unturned. And I guess that's what you get when you talk to poets. Um, you, you talk about a, a wide range of, of subjects, but um, we're going to present these discussions um, not one right after the other. So you know it won't be um, one this week and then next week, and then you know we'll, we will kind of scatter them uh, throughout our our regularly scheduled programming here. Um, but we're going to start today with Robbie Q. Telfer. Now, if you don't know who Robbie Q. Telfer is, uh, he is first and foremost um, an educator on a number of levels. He's been intimately involved in Project Voice in Chicago, uh, which goes into the schools and introduces young people to the practice of putting your emotions and thoughts into words. Uh, he was a founder of Louder Than a Bomb, uh, teen poetry uh, events, uh, which was actually the subject of a movie, and we'll provide a link to that uh, movie's homepage uh, in the show notes. Uh, he works for the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. He is um, also one of the founders of the Encyclopedia Show. So he's kind of everywhere, and I think that you will find this conversation really, really fascinating and in some ways touching beyond my original expectations. And now I realize I should have known better. So let us go to that interview with Robbie Q. Telfer here on Indecent Exposure. Robbie, good morning and thanks for being on Indecent Exposure here at the Greylock Glass. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's really great to have you on here. And can you give us a little bit of a, of a background? Uh, I know that you have been a, a poetry, a national uh, poetry slam finalist. Is that true? Mm-hmm. That's right. When was that? That was in two thousand and seven, which is a long time ago now. <laughs> but uh, 
yeah, that was actually that was one of the last national poetry slams I competed in, and I think it was a really great way to uh, sort of say goodbye to that chapter of my life and hello to the chapter of my life where I get to, you know, find the places that I think poetry, my poetry is sort of a part of a, a useful conversation. I feel like Pittsfield has been one of those places where I just, uh, I've been there a bunch and I think, I think the community there is, is very specifically interested in the kind of poetry that I like the most, not just mine, but the, the many poets that they bring out there and then the poets who live there. It's just a, it's a nice little community that I, I, I really value. It is, it is a, and it's, it's a growing, uh, the, the whole spoken word uh, community is, is, is gaining in, in numbers and strength. Um, what, uh, when did you find out about word, word by word and, and how did you get involved? I got involved in word by word four years ago when my friend and publisher, Derek Brown was sort of doing the job that I'm doing now with a festival, which is this, uh, they call it the host. And essentially it's, the organizers um, will ask an outside poet to sort of help advise and come up and brainstorm ideas for different events. And so my friend Derek invited me as one of the featured poets that was there. And then, you know, now I'm part of that. That's great. That's great. Now, the uh, the Word by Word Festival, it's... Ha- has a number of components and in the interest of full disclosure i should say that uh i i took part in a story slam last week and i will be again mm-hmm. and um and i can say that I've, I've never done that anything like that before so for me i feel like it um it gives a, it gives a person a chance to um to flex a muscle that you you don't normally get to 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 use uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the the experience from the the performer's view of of being up there? Sure. Um, you know, I I feel like the kind of art that I enjoy most, and the kind of art that I, I I like to practice most is art that is a conversation between a artist and an audience. And often that artist has to imagine their audience and think, well, you know, this. I think that my audience is interested in in this topic, and I hope they like it. Um, but with spoken word or with performance or live literature, like storytelling, you are face-to-face with your audience, and you know pretty quickly, unless you're lying to yourself, whether or not they are listening to you and part <laughs> of that conversation. Um, and with things like Slam, the audience often has a chance to give immediate critique by giving you a score. Um, these things are often imperfect and silly, but it, it also means that as an artist, you are forced to really think about what parts of your conversation are relevant and which parts are maybe uh, unnecessary or just about feeding your, your personal ego. And so it's a, the, the stage as a format, as a platform for art, is a really interesting way to edit yourself. It's a really interesting way to represent uh, your half of the argument or the conversation you want to have with an audience. And um, often I find that once you have performed in a play several times, like 
how I've performed in Pittsfield several times, and you get to know that audience pretty well, you can't just bring the same part of your conversation. You have to bring new new parts of it. You need to continue the conversation, whatever that conversation is, or maybe it's multiple conversations. And so that live audience then challenges you to continue to grow with them. What kind of um, space it makes for a good performance venue? I think that if you enjoy performance art, uh, which is what this festival is, you should be able to figure out how to talk to any audience in any setting. Um, but there are definitely preferred settings uh, where, you know, the people are there to have that conversation. You know, sometimes people partake in sort of spontaneous spoken word moments where you perform in the middle of, say, a bus station and you force your art on people. Um, that is a different venue, and definitely the people there have the right to tell you to shut up and leave. Um, but often you'll see with stuff like that is the people who are in attendance there will uh, react and sort of bring themselves to your performance. So I'd say there there's definitely places I prefer to perform. Um, I like a place where there is a group of people who are interested in listening to me, <laughs> um, where they have come to, to, with an open mind and an open heart to hear poetry. And that is, that is definitely my preferred venue. But, you know, I've performed for very large audiences and I've performed for very intimate audiences. And as long as you're able to establish those connections and really make, make sure that your art is the sort of equal conversation, then uh, it doesn't matter too much where I end up doing that. Nice. Nice. Would you, um, you know, I know that many people say, well, everybody has a story to tell. And, mm -hmm. and I think that, that that's true. Uh, do you think that everyone is a born storyteller or is no one a born storyteller or is it somewhere in between? I think that there are definitely introverts and extroverts and introvert extroverts. But I also think that um, everyone does have a unique personality and history that makes their lives worth documenting and, and telling and, and sharing. You know, I was just thinking today about how if you take the average human, like if you find everything that's the most common among humanity and you come up with like the most common name and the most common foods they eat and you make this one person who is the most average, that person, he or she will look like no person. <laughs> no one will, no one is that person. Right. No one is that, that conglomeration of humanity. And so that, that means then that everyone has a part of themselves that is completely special to them and completely above average or, or separate from the norm. Um, and in that way, because of the many different kinds of people there are, then there's always going to be people who are interested in hearing what those people have to say. And so, yeah, I, I do think that everyone has a, a story to tell and ha definitely has a perspective that is useful. Um, and I think the, the craft part of what when we write and when we perform, um, that is just figuring out how to tell your story so it is best heard. 
So you basically, to be a better artist, you have to be the best version of yourself uh, that you can be. You have to know yourself real good. That's that's an excellent point. Knowing yourself, uh, I can tell you that I know myself in uh, to the extent that I am personally a really shy person, mm-hmm. but I do really love to perform. So yeah. it's it's kind of a kind of a, a very twisted uh, dualism that I've got going on here. Yeah, no, me too. In some ways, I definitely shut down at parties sometimes, and I don't want to be gregarious anymore. And I just want to like go home and hang out with my dog and play video games. So, isn't that weird that that we can be is. so? Yeah, and 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 I guess that's probably been true for a long time. Though we haven't always understood that that dynamic within people, um, and mm-hmm. and I'm sure that that has been the unfortunate source of a lot of sorrow uh in in the entertainment world when people who are really gifted performers um their personal lives are not not reflections of what what people see on the screen or on the stage right you can control what part of yourself you bring to a a performance and some people are really good at presenting this version of themselves that they've convinced themselves they are and they've convinced a lot of people that they are uh, but it, it, they could dig deeper and find something else. Hmm. You know, I think we saw that tragically with Bill Cosby recently, where he was this image, and we all believed him to be this image of this perfect father and husband, and he just wasn't. And he was really, really good. He had us all fooled to think that that's what was really going on there, you know? And and on the other side of the spectrum, Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So you have this person whose personal life was a lot darker than we were, we would ever have access to. Yeah. But that's not to say that the things people bring to a performance or to the outside world aren't um, still part of themselves or still a truth. Um, there just might be deeper truths there that complicate the easier truths that were presented in public. Um, good point. Yeah. Really good point. How do you how do you blend those truths that are yours with the poetry that you create? Well, you know, poetry is... A lot of people have different definitions, and my definition of it keeps changing, but I feel like my the way that I like poetry is, is basically playing with language in a way that is... Uh, not just relaying information, but it is relaying emotion um, and, you know, curiosity and wonder and uh, anger. Could you sum up what's different about the written form of poetry? Why why are some poems really uh, effective as written pieces while others are even more so as spoken pieces? Well, it's that for me, it's that question of audience, um, where we, are you writing something that is meant to be read alone by someone who wants to have this sort of like solemn personal moment, or are you writing something that's meant to be heard in a room full of people? And then like who that person is in their solemn moment, who that person is, or who those people are that you, you want to meet in public. Um, is different depending on the public and the venue. A punk rock venue is different than a stadium, is different than an opera house. And 
the people who will come to those venues are going to, you, you can generally expect them to be different people and you can also challenge them, those people. Um, if you have a standard audience that reads your work or listens to your work, you can challenge them. And I think the difference between page and stage is just different, uh, different audiences and different ways we interact with that art. You know, if you're sitting down reading a poem, you can go back and read it again. You can read one line over and over again. You can sit with one line that doesn't really make a lot of sense to you at first and try to make sense of it. In a performance, you can challenge them in different ways, but you can't go back. You're you're on the train and, and it doesn't doesn't stop till it's at the next station. And so you have to try different strategies and different ways of achieving those same things that you get when you're reading or different things that you can't get when you're reading. Um, it's, you know, like, it's the difference between reading a play and seeing it performed. They're just different experiences. And it's the same with performance poetry versus uh, page poetry. And that's not to say that, you know, plays can't be great literature. You know, they teach plays. You read Shakespeare, which yeah. happens to also be performance poetry. Um, and you can enjoy it, but it's also a different experience when it's actually staged. And so... I think, you know, there are, there are performance poems that you can read and enjoy just as much as the performance. And there are page poems that can be performed incredibly effectively. And there are things that, you know, like there are poems in my book that I've never read out loud because I just don't think there are poems that sound good out loud. I think there are things that are interesting to be to sound good in your brain when but, you're by yourself. Now, this book is... um is published by Right Bloody Publishing, right? That's right. And what the title is? Uh, it's Spiking the Sucker Punch. And that was published in... in 2009. 2009, okay. Now, you say that um, there are some pieces that are just really... You, you don't, you've not read them aloud because they just don't seem to fit that, that space. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and I like the, the page versus stage... And, and that you drew a, a, an allusion, a connection to Shakespeare. I, I have never, had never fully gotten Shakespeare until I saw it live. Mm -hmm. And then once I saw it live, I actually enjoyed going back and picking it apart on the page so much yeah. more. Um, so I wonder if, uh, if it, may go the other way that if if you've heard something spoken and you get a chance to also read it afterward i wonder if many people will find the same uh the same kind of um uh you know uh, you know realizations there now you've got um you've got a couple of opportunities to see you know poetry not exactly live but on video uh, through mm -hmm. project voice uh, and you were you're instrumental in project voice yeah, Project Voice is this uh, spoken word teaching artist collective where five poets get to go around to different schools, uh, elementary, middle, and high school mostly, and do assemblies, and then afterwards teach a workshop and talk to the students who are there. And it's a really awesome group of poets, and we had our retreat last month, and we came up with some pretty interesting lesson plans, I think, and... You know, it's a, it's a great group to be a part of, and it's kind of cool that the five of us, uh, two of us live in Chicago, two of us live in New York, and one lives in Providence, and we're still able to collaborate because we live in the future. 
Isn't that great? It is. The future is all right sometimes. What are some of the, the points that you try to, to get across to students? Effective teaching is not about... It's like effective art, basically. And I think good teachers are artists. You have to be able to listen as much as you talk. So there is... At every performance for the school, we ask the young people who are there to be a part of that performance. Um, if it's with elementary students, we write the poem, they perform there. And we get them to do it for each other, and it's the cutest thing in the entire world. But with high school students, after an assembly, we say things like, all right, we know there's uh, writers here. Um, does anyone have a poem they'd like to share? And we, we try to have one or two poets who are from that high school read their poems. And in that way, not only does it show that we can we are comfortable not talking sometimes, but also that the young people who are there have something important to say. And honestly, I've found working with young people that the most effective way to get them to start writing poetry is to get them to see someone who they know who looks and sounds like them to perform a poem. And the older I get, the more me performing a poem is probably less inspiring to young people who don't think they can write because I just, I get further and further away from what they look and sound like. Hmm. All my references are to like, you know, like cartoons that they've never heard of. And so they, there's not, there's not immediate connection to there. Yeah. I hit the, I hit the 45 mark a couple of years ago and, and I noticed that I really can almost not open my mouth around young people today and say any, <laughs> anything that means anything to them. It's uh, it, it, it's like you're on a spaceship that's just going further and farther and farther away from from the solar system. Totally. Um, that's, that's what they want. <laughs> they don't want to be in your planet. <laughs> they don't want to even be in our solar system. Yeah, that's yeah. Good. And I didn't. I didn't when I was their age either. One. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now you've also um, you've also got a project. You're a co-founder of the Encyclopedia Show, which. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say too much about it because it's, it's it's too cool. I would rather have you you describe it. Tell us okay. tell us about the Encyclopedia Show. So, my friend Shani and I started the Encyclopedia Show in 2008 as a way to have live literature be showcased and organized in a way that wasn't a poetry slam um, or wasn't just a, a night of storytelling which were the two predominant ways to share live literature at the time. And there was this really awesome show called The Dollar Store Show, and they would get different writers from different genres, little items that they purchased at a dollar store, and you had a month to write a piece based on this item. And so, like, one year when I did the show, I got a, a beer koozie that was in the shape of a T-shirt uh, and it was also a very patriotic T-shirt. And so I, I wrote a really weird uh, story about what kind of person would wear such a T-shirt. And I wouldn't have written that. It's one of the, my favorite things I've ever written. I wouldn't have written it if I hadn't gotten this weird inspiration that they said, you have to write about this. And so Shani and I were like, well, let's try to organize something that's long-lasting and has infinite variety. And so the Encyclopedia Show took a different... Every show has a different theme that is an encyclopedia entry. And so we did shows on 
Mesopotamia or on vice presidents or um, the periodic table of elements or cheerleading or uh, fast food. We had a whole show on fast food. And the idea was we would invite writers and tell them what they had to write about. And so for Mesopotamia, we had a song about the Mesopotamian, the, the Babylonian god Pazuzu, and uh, he has a, a snake for a, a wiener. And that was a very interesting song, and we had someone else write a love letter to this giant uh, uh, bull with a human head called Lamasu. Um, but also, that show, I wanted, I wanted to find a way to talk about the Iraq war in a way that was new for the time um, and sort of like trick people into remembering that that was a thing that was happening that we should care about. Hmm. And Mesopotamia is in Iraq. Um, it's the only place that we know 10,000 years of continuous history. Uh, and basically I, I use the sort of like crumbling of the Mesopotamian empires as a way to talk about the crumbling of our own empire as we attacked Iraq and blew it up over their resources in the same way that we, that Mesopotamia blew up <laughs> their resources. Uh, we we're looking for oil and they were looking for water. And so uh, I, I basically, I, I think that if you want to change people's minds about things or get them to care about things in new ways, you have to sort of trick them. And so we use the show, this seemingly entertaining artifice, as, a, as an attempt to trick people to care about certain things every month. For our cheerleading show, we really wanted to talk about feminism, but we knew that if we did a show called Feminism, no one would show up. Um, and that's not saying that feminism is bad. It's saying that people are people think they already have their minds made up about it. And we wanted to show how important it was through a, a seemingly sterile lens. You're devious. Yeah. You are. I think you are on the top ten list uh, of the 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 Justice League. They're after, <laughs> aren't they? Superman and Aquaman. They're, they're after you. They're going to put a stop to you. That's right. Um, <clears throat> I think it's brilliant, and uh, and I know what you mean about shining a light on things that people are either think they know or they're desperately trying to avoid. Right. Um, you know, the, the idea of feminism, boy, wouldn't it be nice if that issue of equality just went away once and for all? <laughs> Could we just stop talking about it? Right. You know, it, it would almost be worth Unless it. we find ways to talk about it, it won't get fixed. Right. So how do we talk about it in, in new and surprising ways? You know, it would almost be worth it to give women equal pay for equal work just to not have to talk about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that would be... Yeah, if that's what it takes, yeah, let's uh, let's do it. Um, I think uh, I think that I can't help but draw my own connection here between the Encyclopedia Show and your work as an environmental community organizer at the Field Museum mm -hmm. of Natural History in Chicago. I mean, that sounds to me like there's got to be a um, a sort of a connection there. Am I am I wrong about that? Um, the connection went out for a second. I heard about <laughs> uh, connecting to being an environmental community organizer, and then it, it stopped. Well, it you know, the, the idea of um, a, a, a natural history museum 
is, mm-hmm. you know, by by design, by by necessity, it is it is an encyclopedic environment. You know, the totally. categorizations, the classifications. It, there's a it's a Linnaean world of mm-hmm. of, of of labyrinthine. Um, research and, 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 and archaeological digging. Um, yeah, I'm actually standing next to a, like, saber-toothed tiger skull in a case right now, and then uh, a bunch of um, fossils. <laughs> can, you, can you take a selfie after we're done with this and email it to me? Of, sure. of you standing next to the, the saber-toothed tiger skull? Sure. And that, that's going to be, uh, that's gonna be on, the, uh, on the, uh, the show notes. Cool. Um, because I, I cannot resist uh, putting up a, a, a guest uh, standing next to a saber-toothed tiger skull. I don't get a chance to do that ever. Um, but so the idea between uh, an encyclopedia show and the Natural History Museum, um, but this is the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. Could you explain what uh, what that's all about? Yeah, the Field Museum is coming up on its 125th anniversary as an institution, and it's uh, one of the largest museums of natural history in the world. We have 27 million things in our collections, and they're all housed on-site. So there are, like, basements and sub-basements and rows and rows of, like, jars with snakes and frogs in them, and we have a huge plant library and a huge bug library they don't want to call it a bug library, but that's what it is. And we just have a ton of different artifacts and specimens of different kinds of creatures, and it's all housed here. And we work to present that interestingly to the public through your standard image of what museums are. Um, but also there are things that have to evolve with the evolving times about what a museum is. Um, so we have exhibits, but we also have things that try to extend the, the, the mission outside of the walls of the museum. And my department is called the science action, the, the Keller Science Action um, something. What is it? Keller Center. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> the Keller Science Action Center. And we, as a department, try to go outside of the museum to organized habitat restoration um, and sort of seeing uh, the human impact on the natural world has been, continues to be like very profoundly negative. And if we are trying to educate people about how wonderful and different and important biodiversity is and uh, native ecosystems, then we sort of have an invested a vested interest in going out and preserving those places and protecting them and making sure that those places are still safe places for nature to thrive. And so we go out into different places around Chicagoland. Um, I organized this area underneath Lake Michigan called the Calumet area. And we try to get volunteers to go out and remove invasive species and uh, plant native species and we also have part of our department works in the Andes and Amazon, and they measure their success by millions of hectares of uh, land preserved by the Peruvian or the Colombian government uh, each year. Um, and so they have a different sort of model of conservation 
but we all work together to try to make sure that, you know, the things that we think are beautiful and fascinating about the natural world continue to be themselves and that you don't have to just look at them in a museum. Gosh, there's so much, there's so many directions I could go right now. Well, Um, one thing that I think linking back to poetry and habitat restoration is that I, I feel like it's, it's, very similar, uh, and they do similar things for me, which is maybe why I write less poems than I used to, um, is that we we are trying to create something that allows an audience to have an authentic, honest experience. Uh, in poetry, you, I think the best poets are the ones who, when it's all said and done, the audience doesn't even know that that they experienced art. They, they actually have a, a personal experience that changes them. Um, do you ever watch Shishirama? Yes. Do you remember the episode where Bender meets God? No, I don't remember that one. Well, I recommend it to you and your, your listeners. Okay. Um, so Bender meets God, Bender the robot, and he, for a while, he gets to be God. There are a bunch of tiny people in space who live on his stomach, and he they ask him for things and he messes it up and by, by giving them things. And then he, he, he messes it up by not giving them things. Um, and then eventually they all die in a nuclear apocalypse. Um, they all launch nuclear weapons on, on his body and have a nuclear war with the people living on his butt. Um, and so everyone dies and he meets God and he's like, I was God once. And God says, yes, I know you're doing well until everyone dies. And <laughs> Bender's like, I don't get it. I tried helping them, I tried not helping them, nothing worked. And God says, uh, you have to use a light touch. If you do things right, people won't be sure you've done anything at all. And they repeat it later in that episode. It's like the only thing that they repeat more than once in, in Futurama. If you do things right, people won't be sure you've done anything at all. And not to say that the artist is a god or the habitat restorer is a god, but I think it's the idea that if there is a God, then it's not someone who's in charge of everything or, or trying to change things based on their own personal fulfillment by getting credit or like being seen as the, the giver of all greatness. And when we write poems for an audience and we try to give them something or push a conversation forward, we have to remove our ego and leave space for theirs so that they can insert their own experience. And with habitat restoration, it's the same thing, but your audience isn't people, it's fungus and bacteria and nematodes and worms and trees and flowering plants and conifers and mink and weasels and emus. And so the idea is you have to help create an environment that allows those things to have authentic experiences and those authentic experiences resemble the ones that they were programmed with for tens of thousands of years. That's why a polar bear is probably going to be happier walking around in its natural habitat than it is in a zoo. And so we are trying to make sure those natural habitats are uh, preserved. We're trying to, to make it so that the animals don't have to worry as much about people and the plants don't have to worry as much about people. If we do things right, the animals won't have to worry about people at all. 
Uh, and so that that's the connection to poetry that I see, is that we are trying our hardest to make it so that whoever our audience is, whatever species they are, they're having the most truthful, authentic, honest experience of their own lives that they can. Ah, boy. Robbie, can I tell you something? <laughs> sure, yeah. And I'm, I want the listeners to, to really kind of prick up their ears here. This conversation is why the Greylock Glass exists. Good. The only reason the Greylock Glass exists, because it is only something like this, you know, the Greylock Glass, that allows artists to say these really, to, to, to communicate these huge ideas. Um, you don't get to communicate them in sound bites, in 30 second sound bites. That's true. Um, I wish I, I I still don't think I can fully can, like explain what the encyclopedia show is to my family. Uh, <laughs> it's like uh, give me give me two hours, I'll, I'll get to shit. Well, it's the connections that you've you've made, and 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 I don't I am not against bringing in a spiritual element um, mm-hmm. because. I know I have some friends who are atheists and they say some of the most spiritually moving things sometimes they would never admit that. Um, But uh, I think that there is, there is a connection between um, the inside of me, the inside of an ecosystem, the audience member sitting in, in a chair at a poetry slam and that connection often looks like art. Um, mm-hmm. But as you say, it doesn't, you're not focusing on the fact that it is art. And uh, while you're experiencing it, it's, it's just an authentic experience. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to dilute what you said by going on any, any further. Um, but since we did talk about, this before we hit the record button. Use the Kankakee Mallow uh-huh. as as an as a description of of what the importance of a of a of a native species is and, and why it's important to try to preserve that. So the Kankakee Mallow is my candidate for state flower of Illinois where I live. Uh because the Kankakee Mallow is the only flower that lives exclusively uh, within Illinois' borders. It's from a 20-acre island in the Kankakee River, and it evolved there over 10,000 years, uh, separate from other mallows. Its closest relative lives in Virginia, and no one knows why that is. Um, And its island, Langham Island, needs to be restored in order for the mallow to exist naturally. Um, people have seeds of it in gardens and stuff, but it's not a, it's the same as the polar bear in the zoo. Uh, it's not a natural environment and it's a genetic bottleneck and all these other reasons why it's not authentic. But so we have to restore Langham Island. I was actually just out there yesterday, uh, trying to, my friend Eric has a drone and we were trying to fly the drone to the island because the river's been closed to see if there are any mallows there, and the results were inconclusive. But uh, the main thing is that 
unless humans go to that island and remove the na- the invasive um, species that have taken over the island, the Kenki Mallows environment will die, and it will not live anymore. And if we do a, a good job of that, uh, then the mallow will just get to be itself. Uh, I think another good example is this, there's this documentary about uh, handicapped pets, um, and there is this dog, this border collie, this, this like two-legged or three-legged border collie, and they built prosthetic legs for it. And as soon as the prosthetic legs were on the dog and they were able to uh, use them, they didn't bite at them, they didn't sit there and sniff them, they just ran. <laughs> the dog just ran and... They, the owners were like, oh, my God, and I had to, like, stop it from going into traffic uh, because it hadn't done that before. But that's what it is, is a creature that, that is made to run. And so we are trying with habitat restoration to make these places where the, the creatures are, 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 do, are able to do what they're made to do uh, and be themselves. So I think the Kankakee Mallow is a great uh, representative of that idea for a state flower so that you can't talk about uh, state pride without talking about conservation. That's a really, that's again, a great way to make that connection in people's mind. And, and for those viewers who have not seen the, the Kankakee Mallow, we will, will link to the uh, vote for Mallow Habitat 2030 uh, mm-hmm. site so that you can see that it's, it's a good looking plant. Yeah, we, I've got, Good. I said it's handsome. Yeah, yeah. We've got a couple of mallow varieties here mm-hmm. that look similar, but uh, again, mm-hmm. they're not not quite the same. Well, I um, I feel like I could talk all morning about what we're what what you've got going on here. Um, and like I said, there are a hundred different directions I'd love to take the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, what we'll do is we will uh, we'll provide a bunch of links to. Um, Project Voice to the Encyclopedia Show, uh, of course to Word by Word, and um, and you're going to send that 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 selfie with the uh, the saber tooth. Doing that, the lighting is not great in this hallway. Doesn't have to be. Oh. Doesn't have to. Okay, be. good. <laughs> um, the uh, it's it's just, it's just a way of being authentic. You That's really right. you were really there. Um, <laughs> it has been such a joy uh, speaking with you. I want to yeah. I want to thank you for taking all this time, Robbie. And um, for those of you who um, who want to get a little taste of of you know poetry uh, read live, do follow the link because uh, you've got some you've got some video of um, at Project Voice, right? Of some some yeah, the video at Project Voice, or at least a, a link out to video. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Have Bye-bye. a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. The big questions, big concepts. Big impact. That's what you get when you delve into a mind like Robbie Telfer's. Uh, This is a a gentleman who has been dedicated to his craft and to giving back uh, to the community that the spoken word may may thrive. I I can tell you that uh, I hope we get a chance to talk to him again. 
And if all goes well, we'll have some some toys to play with next time around, uh, maybe next year, if he comes back for the Word by Word Festival. Uh, we'll maybe do a, a video, which would be nice. Um, for now, please do uh, visit all of the sites mentioned. They're in the show notes. You can get to them if you're listening to this via iTunes. Uh, you can get to the show notes by going to graylockglass.com, finding this episode of Indecent Exposure, which is episode 12, and uh, all the info is right there on the printed page, so so to speak, anyway. Um, next up, I'm going to play a tune from an artist I featured on The Mongrel's Howl lo- those many years ago. Um, and it's a tune I, I have to play because the lyrics are some of the most poetic and brilliant, blisteringly brilliant, that I've ever played on any show. Uh, the tune is Locked in My Mouth. The artist is Sariana Sabaresi. And it's uh, there's some mystery involved here because uh, she and her, well, mostly she, I guess, wrote uh, some amazing tunes. She was Boston-based for a while, moved to New York, not sure where she is now. I know that she has a YouTube channel. Uh, You can find her on Reverb Nation. Um, You can still find her on MySpace. And um, and there are other ways to find her, but I haven't found any new album or new tunes, which does not mean they're not out there. So, Sariana, if you're listening, definitely uh, hit me up with an email and let me know what I can play that's that's brandy new, because I'd love to. Um, That goes for anybody else who happens to know of her musical whereabouts these days. Uh, For now, I will put a link to um, the Reverb Nation page because there are another few songs that are definitely worth checking out. Um, But for now, let's listen to Locked in My Mouth by Sariana. Thank you. 
Yeah, I, I thought you'd like that one. It's so icy, isn't it? I mean, it would be venomous if it weren't so fatigued and full of ennui. Well, let's hope that uh, let's hope that we can we can stumble across the uh, the artist Sariana and find out what she has come up with since "Locked in My Mouth." Um, in any event, that's our show. Remember that you can connect with us via Facebook, Twitter. Uh, if you go to greylockglass.com, there are buttons all over the place that'll get you to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Remember that you can also sign up for the newsletter, Prism, which goes out occasionally, hopefully once a week from now on. But, uh, we provide content in Prism that you can't get on this show or on the website, only available through the news, the letter there. And uh, and you can click on the subscribe button on the homepage to get to that. Uh, always leave comments, send email, let us know what you think, give us story ideas. Uh, if you've got bands that you know locally who'd like to be featured on this show, we would love to hear from them. Uh, until then, this is your host, Jason Velasquez, known in an alternate universe as The Mongrel. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.